Charlie to the Rescue, Chapter 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charlie to the Rescue by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter 2 The Shipwreck. Read by Mark Thornton, Miranda, New Zealand. We have no intention of carrying our reader on step by step through all the adventures and deeds of charlie brooke it is necessary to hasten over his boyhood leaving untold the many battles fought risks run and dangers encountered he did not cut much of a figure at the village school though he did his best and was fairly successful but in the playground he reigned supreme at football cricket gymnastics and ultimately at swimming no one else could come near him this was partly owing to his great physical strength, for, as time passed by, he shot upwards and outwards in a way that surprised his companions and amazed his mother, who was a distinctly little woman, a neat graceful little woman, with, like her stalwart son, a modest opinion of herself. As a matter of course, Charlie's schoolfellows almost worshipped him, and he was always so willing to help and lead them in all cases of danger or emergency, that, Charlie to the rescue! became quite a familiar cry on the playground. Indeed, it would have been equally appropriate in the school, for the lad never seemed to be so thoroughly happy as when he was assisting some boy less capable than himself to master his lessons. About the time that Charlie left school, while yet a stripling, he had the shoulders of Samson, the chest of Hercules, and the limbs of Apollo. He was tall also, over six feet, but his unusual breadth deceived people, as to this till they stood close to him. Fair hair, close and curly, with bright blue eyes and a permanent look of grave benignity completes our description of him. Rowing, shooting, fishing, boxing, and swimming seemed to come naturally to him, and all of them in a superlative degree. Swimming was, perhaps, his most loved amusement, and in this art he soon far outstripped his friend Leather. Some men are endowed with exceptional capacities in regard to water. We have seen men go into the sea warm and come out warmer, even in cold weather. Experience teaches that the reverse is usually true of mankind in northern regions, yet we once saw a man enter the sea, to all appearance a white human being, after remaining in it upwards of an hour and swimming away from shore, like a vessel outward bound, he came back at last the colour of a boiled lobster. Such exceptional qualities did Charlie Brooke possess. A South Sea Islander might have envied, but could not have excelled him. It was these qualities that decided the course of his career just after he left school. Charlie, said his mother, as they sat eating their midday meal alone one day, the mother being, as we have said, a widow, and Charlie an only child, what do you think of doing, now that you have left school? For you know my income renders it impossible that I should send you to college. I don't know what to think, mother. Of course, I intend to do something. If you had only influence with someone in power who could enable a fellow to get his foot on the first round of any sort of ladder, something might be done, for you know I'm not exactly useless, though I can't boast of brilliant talents, but— Your talents are brilliant enough, Charlie, said his mother, interrupting. Besides, you have been sent into this world for a purpose and you may be sure that you will discover what that purpose is, 
and receive help to carry it out if only you ask God to guide you. Not otherwise, she added after a pause. Do you really believe, mother, that everyone who is born into the world is sent for a purpose and with a specific work to do? I do indeed, Charlie. What? All the cripples, invalids, imbeciles, even the very infants who are born to wail out their sad lives in a few weeks or even days? Yes, all of them without exception. To suppose the opposite and imagine that a wise, loving and almighty being would create anything for no purpose seems to me the very essence of absurdity. Our only difficulty is that we do not always see the purpose. All things are ours, but we must ask if we would have them. But I have asked, mother, said the youth, with an earnest flush on his brow. You know I have done so often, yet a way has not been opened up yet. I believe in your faith, mother, but I don't quite believe in my own. There surely must be something wrong, a screw loose somewhere. He laid down his knife and fork, and looked out at the window with a wistful, perplexed expression. How I wish, he continued, that the lines had been laid down for the human race more distinctly, so that we could not err. And yet, responded his mother, with a peculiar look, such lines as are obviously laid down we don't always follow. For instance, it is written, Ask, and it shall be given you. And we stop there. But the sentence does not stop. Seek, and ye shall find, implies care and trouble. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you, hints at perseverance, does it not? There's something in that, mother, said Charlie, casting another wistful glance out of the window. Come, I will go out and seek. I see Shank Leather waiting for me. We agreed to go to the shore together, for we both like to watch the waves roaring in on a breezy day like this. The youth rose, and began to encase his bulky frame in a great pilot-cloth coat, each button of which might have done duty as an afternoon tea saucer. "'I wish you would choose any companion to walk with but young Leather,' said the widow, with a sigh. "'He's far too like his father to do you any good.' "'Mother!' "'Would you have me give up an old playmate and schoolfellow because he is not perfect?' asked the youth in grave tones, as he tied on a sou'wester. "'Well, no, not exactly, but—' Not having a good reason ready, the worthy woman only smiled her remonstrance. The stalwart son stooped, kissed her, and was soon outside, battling with the storm, for what he styled a breezy day was in reality a wild and stormy one. Long before the period we have now reached, Mrs. Brooke had changed her residence to the sea-coast in the small town of Sealford. Her cottage stood in the centre of the village, about half a mile from the shore, and close to that of her bosom friend, Mrs. Leather, who had migrated along with her, partly to be near her and partly for the sake of her son, Shank, who was anxious to retain the companionship of his friend Brooke, partly also to get her tippling husband away from old comrades and scenes in the faint hope that she might rescue him from the great curse of his life. When Charlie went out, as we have said, he found that Shank had brought his sister May with him. This troubled our hero a good deal, for he had purposed having a confidential talk with his old comrade upon future plans and prospects, to the accompaniment of the roaring sea, and a third party was destructive of such intention. Besides, poor May, although exceedingly unselfish and sweet and good, was at that transition period of life when girlhood is least attractive, at least to young men, 
when bones are obtrusive and angles too conspicuous, and the form generally is too suggestive of flatness and longitude, while shyness marks the manners and inexperience dwarfs the mind. We would not, however, suggest for a moment that May was ugly, by no means, but she had indeed reached what may be styled a plain period of life, a period in which some girls become silently sheepish and others tomboyish. May was among the former, and therefore a drag upon conversation. But, after all, it mattered little, for the rapidly increasing gale rendered speech nearly impossible. "'It's too wild a day for you, May,' said Brooke, as he shook her hands with her. "'I wonder you care to be out.' "'She doesn't care to be out, but I wanted her to come, and she's a good obliging girl, so she came,' said Chang, drawing her arm through his as they pressed forward against the blast in the direction of the shore. Shank Leather had become a sturdy young fellow by that time, but was much shorter than his friend. There was about him, however, an unmistakable look of dissipation, or rather the beginning of it, which accounted for Mrs. Brooke's objection to him as a companion for her son. We have said that the cottage lay about half a mile from the shore, which could be reached by a winding lane between high banks. These effectually shut out the view of the sea until one was close to it, though at certain times the roar of the waves could be heard even in Sealford itself. Such a time was the present, for the gale had lashed the sea into wildest fury, and not only did the three friends hear it as, with bent heads, they forced their way against the wind, but they felt the foam of ocean on their faces, as it was carried inland, sometimes in lumps and flakes. At last they came to the end of the lane, and the sea, lashed to its wildest condition, lay before them like a sheet of tortured foam. "'Grand, isn't it?' said Brooke, stopping and drawing himself up for a moment, as if with a desire to combat the opposing elements. If May Leather could not speak, she could at all events gaze, for she had superb brown eyes, and they glittered, just then, like glowing coals, while, while a wealth of rippling brown hair was blown from its fastenings and flew straight out behind her. "'Look! Look there!' shouted her brother with a wild expression, as he pointed to a part of the rocky shore where a vessel was dimly seen through the drift. "'She's trying to weather the point!' exclaimed Brooke, clearing the moisture from his eyes and endeavouring to look steadily. "'She'll never weather it! See! The fishermen are following her ashore!' cried young Leather, dropping his sister's arm and bounding away. "'Oh, don't leave me behind, Shank!' pleaded May. Shank was beyond recall but our hero had also sprung forward, heard the pleading voice, and turned back. "'Here, hook on to me,' he cried quickly, for he was in no humour to delay. The girl grasped his arm at once, and, to say truth, she was not much of a hindrance, for, although somewhat inelegant, as we have said, she was lithe as a lizard and fleet as a young colt. A few minutes brought them to the level shore, where Brooke left May to shelter herself with some fisherwomen behind a low wall, while he ran along to a spot where a crowd of fishermen and old salts, enveloped in oilskins, were discussing the situation as they leaned against the shrieking wind. "'Will she weather it, Grinder, think you?' he asked of an elderly man, whose rugged features resembled mahogany, the result of having bid defiance to wind and weather for nigh half a century. "'She may, Mr. Brook, and she may,' answered the matter-of-fact man of the sea, in the gruff monotone with which he would have summoned all hands to close reef in a hurricane. "'If her tackle holds, she'll do it. If it don't, she won't.' 
"'We've sent round for the rocket anyhow,' said a smart young fisherman, who seemed to rejoice in opposing his broad chest to the blast, and in listening to the thunder of the waves as they rolled into the exposed bay in great battalions, chasing each other in wild, tumultuous fury, as if each were bent on being first in the mad assault upon the shore. "'Has the lifeboat coxswain been called?' asked Charlie, after a few minutes' silence, for the voice of contending elements was too great to render converse easy or agreeable. "'Yes, sir,' answered the man nearest to him. "'But she's been called to a wreck in Muscle Bay, and that brig will be all right or in Davy Jones' locker long before the lifeboat had fetched round here.' Silence again fell on the group as they gazed out to sea, pushing eagerly down the beach until they were ankle-deep in the foam of each expended wave, for the brig was by that time close on the point of rocks, staggering under more sail than she could carry with safety. "'She'll do it!' exclaimed the smart young fisherman, ready to cheer with enthusiastic hope. "'Done for! Lost!' cried one, while something like a groan burst from the others as they saw the brig's topmast go over the side and one of her sails blown to ribbons. She fell away towards the rocks at once. Like great black teeth, these rocks seemed to leap in the midst of the foam, as if longing to grasp the ill-fated vessel which had, indeed, all but weathered the dangerous point, and all might have been well if her gear had only held, but now, as if paralysed, she drifted into the bay, where certain destruction awaited her. Just at that moment a great cheer arose, for the rocket-cart, drawn by the men of the Coast Guard, was seen rattling over the downs towards them. Anxiety for the fate of the doomed brig was now changed into eager hope for the rescue of her crew. The fishermen crowded round the Coast Guard men as they ran the cart close down to the water's edge, and some of them, especially the smart young fellow already mentioned, made eager offer of their services. Charlie Brooks stood aloof, looking on with profound interest, for it was the first time he had ever seen the Mamby rocket apparatus brought into action. He made no hasty offer to assist, for he was a cool youth, even while burning with impatient enthusiasm and saw at a glance that the men of the Coast Guard were well able to manage their own affairs and required no aid from him. As the brig was coming straight in, they could easily calculate where she would strike, so that the rocket men could set up their triangle and arrange their tackle without delay. This was fortunate, for the wreck was carried shoreward with great rapidity. She struck at last when within a short distance of the beach, and the faces of those on board could be distinctly seen, and their cries heard, as both masts snapped off, and were swept over the side, where they tore at the shrouds like wild creatures, or charged the hulk like battering rams. Instantly the billows that had borne the vessel on their crest burst upon her sides, and spurted high in air over her, falling back on her deck, and sweeping off everything that was movable. It could be seen that only three or four men were on deck, and these kept well under the lee of the bulwarks near the stern, where they were strongest. "'No passengers, I think,' said one of the fishermen. "'No women, anyhow.' "'Not likely they'd be loud on deck, even if there was,' growled Grinder in his monotone. "'Now then, out of the way!' cried the leader of the Coast Guard men, as he laid a rocket in its place. "'Line all clear, Fred! All clear!' Next moment there was a burst of flame, a crash, and a vicious whiz, as the powerful projectile leaped from its stand and sped out to sea, in grand defiance of the opposing gale, with its light line behind it. A cheer marked its flight, but a groan told of its descent into the boiling sea, considerably to the left of the wreck. 
"'What a pity!' cried Shankleather, who had come close to his friend when the rocket-cart arrived. "'No matter,' said Brooke, whose compressed lips and flashing eyes told of deep but suppressed feelings. "'There are more rockets!' He was right. While he was speaking, another rocket was placed and fired. It was well directed, but fell short. Another, and yet another, rose and fell, but failed to reach its mark, and the remainder of the rockets refused to go off for some unknown cause, either because they had been too long in stock, or had become damp. Meantime the brig was tossed farther and farther in, until she stuck quite fast. Then it became evident that she must soon break up, and her crew perish. Hasty plans and eager advice were proposed and given. Then the smart young fisherman suddenly sprang forward, and threw off his oil-coat and sou'wester. "'Here! Hold on!' he cried, catching up the end of the rocket-line, and fastening it round his waist, while he kicked off his heavy boots. "'You can't do it, Bill!' cried some. "'Too far to swim!' cried others. "'The seas'll knock the life out of you,' said Grinder, "'afore you're clear of the sand!' Despite these warnings, the brave young fellow dashed into the foam and plunged straight into the first mighty breaker that towered over his head. But he was too much excited to act effectively. He failed to time his plunge well. The wave fell upon him with a roar and crashed down on him. In a few seconds he was dragged ashore, almost insensible. Example, whether good or bad, is infectious. Another strapping young fellow, stirred to emulation, ran forward and, seizing the rope, tied it round his own waist, while they helped poor Bill up the beach and seated him on the sandbank. The second youth was more powerful than the first, and cooler. He made a better attempt, but only got past the first wave, when his comrades, seeing that he was exhausted, drew him back. Then a third, a broad, burly youth, came forward. At this point the soul of Shankleather took fire, for he was by no means destitute of generous impulses, and he tried to get hold of the rope. "'Out of the way!' cried the burly youth, giving Leather a rough push that almost sent him on his back. "'We don't want no landlubbers for this kind of work!' Up to this point Charlie Brooke, although burning with eager desire to take some active part in the rescue, had restrained himself and held back, believing, with characteristic modesty, that the fishermen knew far better than he did how to face the sea and use their appliances. But when he saw his friend stay and go backwards, he sprang to the front, caught hold of the line, and, seizing the burly fisherman by the arm, exclaimed, "'You'll let this landlubber try it, anyhow!' and sent him spinning away like a capsized nine-pin. There was a short laugh, as well as a cheer at this, but next moment all were gazing at the sea in breathless anxiety, for Brooke had rushed deep into the surf. He paused one moment as the great wave curled over him, then went through it head-first with such force that he shot waist-high out of the sea on the other side. His exceptional swimming powers now served him well, for his otter-like rapidity of action enabled him to avoid the crushing billows either by diving through them at the right moment, or holding back until they fell, and left him only the mad swirling foam to contend with. This last was bad enough, but here his great muscular strength, and his inexhaustible choleric, with this cork-like power of flotation, enabled him to hold his own without exhaustion, until another opportunity of piercing an unbroken wave offered. Thus he gradually forced his way through and beyond the worst breakers, which are always nearest the shore. Had any one been close to him, and able calmly to watch his movements, it would have been seen that, great as were the youth's powers, he did not waste them in useless battling with a force against which no man could effectively contend. That, with a cool head, he gave way to every irresistible force, swimming for a moment, as it were, with the current, 
or rather floating easily in the whirlpools, so as to conserve his strength, that, ever and anon, he struck out with all his might, rushing through foam and wave like a fish, and that, in the midst of it all, he saw and seized the brief moments in which he could take a gasping inhalation. Those who watched him with breathless anxiety on shore saw little of all of this as they paid out the line or perched themselves on tiptoe on the few boulders that here and there strewed the sand. "'Haul him back!' shouted the man who was farthest out of the line. "'He's used up!' "'No, he's not. I know him well,' roared Shankleather. "'Pay out, men! Pay out line!' "'Ah, he's away!' said Grinder in a thunderous growl. "'He's a wriggler walrus, he is. Never seen such a fellow since I left the southern seas. He's away, boys!' A cheer followed his remark for at that moment it was seen that our hero had reached the tail of the eddy which was caused by the hull of the wreck, and that one of her crew had darted from the cover of the vessel's bulwarks and taken shelter under the stump of the mainmast. His object was seen in a moment, for he unhooked a coil of rope from the belaying pins and stood ready to heave it to the approaching swimmer. In making even this preparation the man ran a very great risk, for the stump was but a partial shelter. Each wave that burst over the side, sweeping wildly round it, and leaping on the man higher than his waist, so that it was very difficult for him to avoid being torn from his position. Charlie's progress was now comparatively easily made. A few vigorous strokes brought him under the lee of the wreck, which, however, was by no means a quiet spot, for each divided wave, rushing round bow and stern, met there in a tumult of foam that almost choked the swimmer, while each billow that burst over the wreck poured a small Niagara on his head. How to get on board in such circumstances was a subject that had troubled Charlie's mind as he drew near, but the action of the sailor unhooking the coil of rope at once relieved him. The moment he came within reach, the sailor, watching his opportunity between waves, threw out the coil. It was aimed by an accustomed hand, and fell on the rescuer's head. Another minute and young Brooks stood on the deck. Without waiting an instant, he leapt under the shelter of the stump of the mainmast beside the seaman. He was only just in time, for a wave burst in thunder on the weather side of the quivering brig, and, pouring over the bulwarks, almost dragged him from the belaying pins to which he clung. The instant the strain was off, he passed a rope round his waist and gave the end of it to the sailor. "'Here, make it fast,' he said, beginning to haul with all his might on the line which he had brought from the shore. "'You're the skipper, eh?' "'Yes. Don't waste your breath in speech. I know what to do. All's ready.' These few words were an unspeakable relief to our hero, who was well aware that the working of the rocket apparatus required a slight amount of knowledge, and who felt from his manner and tone that the skipper was a thorough man. He glanced upwards as he hauled in the line, assisted by his companion, and saw that a stout rope with two loops on it had been fixed to the stump of the mast. Just as he noted this with satisfaction, a large block with a thin line rove through it emerged from the boiling sea. It had been attached by the men on shore to the rocket line which Charlie had been hauling out with so much energy. His name was indicated by the skipper. "'Here comes the whip!' he cried, catching hold of the block when it reached him. "'Hold me up, lad, while I make it fast to them loops!' While Charlie obeyed, he saw that by fixing the tail lines of the block quickly to the loops prepared for them, instead of winding them round the mast, a difficult process in such a sea, much time was saved. "'There!' "'Our part of the job is done now,' said the skipper, pulling off his sou'wester as he spoke and holding it up as a signal to the men on shore. Meanwhile, those to whom he signalled had been watching every movement with intense eagerness, 
and with the expressions of men whose gaze has to penetrate with difficulty through a haze of blinding spray. "'They've got the block now!' cried one man. "'Does that young fellow know about fixing of it?' asked another. "'Clap a stopper on your mugs, they're a-fixing it now,' said old Grinder. "'There's the signal. Haul away, lads!' We must explain here that the whip above mentioned was a double or endless line, passing through the block which had been hauled out to the wreck by our hero. By means of this whip one end of a stout cable was sent off to the wreck, and on this cable a sling lifebuoy was hung to a pulley and also run out to the wreck. The working of the apparatus, though simple enough to seamen, would entail a complicated, perhaps incomprehensible, description to a landsman. We therefore pass it by with the remark that, connection with the shore having been established, and the sling lifebuoy, or life-saving machine, run out, the crew received it with what was meant for a hearty cheer, but which exhaustion modified to a feeble shout. "'Now, lads!' cried the skipper to his men. "'Look sharp! Let out the passengers!' "'Passengers!' exclaimed Charlie Brooke in surprise. "'I, my wife and little girl, two women and an old gentleman!' You don't suppose I'd keep him on deck to be washed overboard? As he spoke, two of the men opened the doors of the companion hatch and caught hold of a little girl of about five years of age who was handed up by a woman. Stay! Keep her under cover till I get hold of her, cried the skipper. As he was passing from the mast to the companion, a heavy sea burst over the bulwarks and swept him into the scuppers. The same wave wrenched the child from the grasp of the man who held it and carried it right overboard. Like an eel rather than a man, Charlie cleft the foam close behind her, caught her by the skirt, and bore her to the surface, when a few strokes of his free arm brought him close under the lee of the wreck, just in time to prevent the agonized father from leaping after his child. There was a terrible suspense for a few minutes. At one moment our hero, with his burden held high aloft, was far down in the hollow of the watery turmoil, with the black hull like a great wall rising about him while the skipper in the main chains, pale as death but sternly silent, held on with his left hand and reached down with his right, every finger rigid and ready. Next moment a water-spout, so to speak, bore the rescuer upward on its crest, but not near enough, they went downward again. Once more the leaping water surged upwards, the skipper's strong hand closed like the grip of death on the dress, and the child was safe while its rescuer sank away from it. "'Help him!' shouted the skipper as he staggered to the shelter of the companion. But Charlie required no help. A loose rope hanging over the side caught his eye. He seized it and was on deck again in a few seconds. A minute later and he was down in the cabin. There, terror-stricken, sat the skipper's wife, never venturing to move, because she had been told to remain there till called. Happily she knew nothing of the incident just described. Beside her sat the other woman, and near to them a stern old gentleman, who, with compressed lips, quietly awaited orders. "'Come quick,' said Charlie, grasping by the arm one of the women. It was the skipper's wife. She dumped up right willingly and went on deck. There she found her child already in the lifebuoy, and was instantly lifted in beside it by her husband, who looked hastily round. "'Come here, Dick,' he said to a little cabin boy, who clung to a stanchion nearby. "'Get in!' The boy looked surprised and drew back. "'Get in, I say,' repeated the skipper, sternly. "'There's more women, sir,' said the boy, still holding back. "'True, brave lad. But you're wanted to keep those from getting washed out. I'm too heavy, you know.' The boy hesitated no longer. He squeezed himself into the machine, beside the woman and child. 
Then, up at arm's length, went the skipper's sou'wester as a signal that all was ready, and the fishermen began to haul the life-boy to the shore. It was an awful trip. Part of the distance, indeed, the trio were borne along well out of the sea, though the waves leapt hungrily up and sent spray over them, but as they drew near the shore they were dipped again and again into the foam, so that the little cabin-boy needed all his energy and knowledge, as well as his bravery and strength, to prevent his charge being washed out. Amid ringing cheers from the fishermen, and a treble echo from the women behind the wall, they were at last safely landed. "'My lass, that friend o' your be a brave child,' said an old woman to May Leather, who crouched beside her. "'Aye, that he is,' exclaimed May, with a gush of enthusiasm in tone and eyes that made them all turn to look at her. "'Your brother?' asked a handsome, strapping young woman. "'No, I wish he was.' "'Hm-ha!' <laughs> exclaimed the strapping young woman, whereat there was an exchanged significant laugh, but May took no notice of it, being too deeply engrossed with the proceedings on shore and sea. Again the fisherman ran out the life-boy, and soon hauled it back with another woman, then a third. After that came the old gentleman, quite self-possessed and calm, though very pale and dishevelled, and following him the crew, one by one, were rescued. Then came the hero of the hour, and last of all, as in duty bound, the skipper. Not much too soon, for he had barely reached the land when the brig was overwhelmed and engulfed in the raging sea. End of chapter 2